It's always a joy and an honor to be speaking and preaching as much as I also enjoy hearing from one another and we schedule guests and in-house folks. I also love this and I, I say this a lot. I'm, I'm, I'm on the journey as a communicator. I'm, I don't always hit home runs, but there's singles and doubles consistently. So, but for somebody here today, God has something for you. I absolutely believe that. Story N.T. Wright shares, the newspaper reporter was incredulous. A young woman had just won a competition. The first prize was a three-week trip around the world, the chance of a lifetime. And she had given it up. She won the trip around the world and she had given it up in order to stay with a friend as she went into the hospital to face a crucial and terrifying operation. I mean, the reporter went on, surely your friend in the hospital would understand there must have been other people who could have been there with her in the hospital. The young woman remained silent, pursing her lips together, eventually singing that the reporter was not going to get away and she wasn't going to get away with saying nothing. She burst out to the reporter. All right, then you really want to know? You think I'm crazy, huh? But what none of you know, and I wasn't going to tell you is that what this woman did for me three years ago, I was on drugs and I couldn't stop. She goes on and says, I got worse and worse and my family threw me out. She was the only person who looked after me and she sat up all night again and again and talked me through it. She mopped me down when I threw up. She changed my clothes. She took me to the hospital. She talked to the doctors. She made sure I was coming through it. And she helped me with the court case as well. She even helped me get a job. She, she, she loved me, she says. So did I have any choice? Now that she's sick herself, it's the least thing I can do to stay with her. And that's far less, far less than what she had done for me. In the passage we're looking at this morning, there's two big chunks. There's verses 11 through 15 and then 16 through 21. And we want to just look at this. And this is one of these, when we've been doing verse by verse stuff, it's super simple. And just kind of walking through and say, Lord, what's going on in this text? And what might it mean for us today? In the first part of the passage, if you're following along the outline, this first part we might call the impelling or the compelling love of Christ. Say it with me, the compelling love of Christ. Come on, one, two, three, the compelling love of Christ. Oh, that was really weak. I need more just so I know you're alive and awake. Say it with me, one, two, three, the compelling love of Christ. The big idea that Paul begins in this section, and he's in a larger section of defending his ministry in the church at Corinth, which is under attack uh, by sort of false teaching and those that are trying to shift the message away from Jesus. It's under attack by an ancient group. Uh, they, many of the biblical scholars believe the sophists, who were sort of these people that would come in and give eloquent speeches and sort of move the crowd. And it was a big thing in the ancient Greco-Roman world. But they were shifting away the gospel from the centralness of Jesus and, and giving in a false gospel. And saying Paul, in fact, didn't teach them the, 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 the right thing. When in fact, Paul was the one that founded the church. They wouldn't be there at all except for what Paul had done. And so Paul's dealing with this again in this church and things going off the rails. So in the first passage, we see Paul is talking about his sincerity and integrity. He's talking about what is driving him, what is his real motive in response to some of these attacks. And then also reminding them of how Christ, what Christ does in terms of building community. And so let's look a little bit at verses 11 through 15, and then we'll move to the last half this morning as well. 
So 11 and 12, again, Paul says, I, we, because we know the fear of the Lord, we're trying to persuade people, but we are well known to God and to your consciences as well. And verse 12, we're not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but give you an opportunity to be proud of us so that you may be able to answer those who take pride in outward appearance and not in what is in the heart. So verse 11, we see this transition since then from what has gone before and back in verse 10 that we heard about in last week. And Paul is motivated in part by pleasing the Lord. He understands that his works will be judged by him. So when he talks about this being motivated by the fear of the Lord, he has two motivations that he names in this passage. And the fear of the Lord is not like we think of fear or paralysis or sort of a a psychological destructive, but this sense of overwhelming um, responsibility because of who God is and what God has revealed about God's self to Paul. And he says, because of this, I'm motivated to share. And then in verse 12, if we look at that a little more, he says, I want, to, I want you all, the Corinthians, he says, I want you all to take pride, not simply in what is seen superficially, what the sophists are bringing to you, not the shiny show as we talked about some weeks ago, but he says, I want you to understand the character that's driving me and that you can take pride in what you've learned from me, Paul says to them. I like this. Sometimes in leadership, we're told, don't defend yourself, just let it go. But there are sometimes seasons where you need to do this. And Paul is saying to them, given the false attacks in that church, he's saying, the things that you see in me are things you should be proud of versus the surfacey things that are being attacked. Look at the character, look at the trajectory, look at the life, look at the fruit, Paul is saying. And he's reminding them of that. And it's important because that stuff is not being pointed out. That stuff is being downplayed by those that are attacking Paul in this message or in this, in this church. He says this as well. And we read this again in verse 12. And just keep your Bible open as we go through this. And if you're taking notes, it's a good way to remember for home church discussions. He says, I'm not trying to commend yourselves. And then he goes on and commends him, which is kind of funny. But he's doing it in a way that's not like the sophists. But he's like, I'm giving you the opportunity to be proud of us. So that we may be able to answer those who take pride in outward appearance, but not as what is in the heart. And many scholars will point this out as well, that those that would have been from the Jewish background, which probably would not have been the majority in this church, but they would have heard this through the Hebrew Bible, and they would have heard the story of Samuel anointing the next king of Israel when the kingship moved from Saul's family to a different family, a different house, the house of David. And I don't know if you remember that story. For those of you that have know those stories, if not, uh, at some time we need to do a whole season on the stories of the Old Testament because there's so much of that that's stated and alluded to in the New Testament. But there's a part where Samuel is called by God, you're to anoint the next king of Israel and you need to go to the house of Jesse. And I believe Jesse, didn't he have 12 sons? Anybody remember who's way smarter than his 12 sons? I think he had 12, like 10. Or, he had a whole bunch of sons, a whole bunch of them, big family. And um, Sarah and Jimmy, you're just getting started, right? So, oh, no. <laughs> Um, I'm kidding. Sorry. That was horrible. Horrible. Don't ever say that to anybody. Okay. Uh, so, um, anyway, the, a whole bunch of kids and the kids were brought out after again and again and again, and, you know, and they were good looking. They were strong. There was the eldest, there was the rest and every one of them. God says, no, that's not it. And finally the prophet's like, well, Hey Jesse, are you holding out on me? You got any more sons? And he's like, well, there's the runt is out in the field. I didn't even bother with him. And of course the Lord tells Samuel, that's the one bring him in, you know? And says there that God does not look so much on the outward, but the inward, cares about the inward as well. So verse 12, uh, the first part is commending himself, but in an inoffensive way, not like the speech makers called the sophists. There's something about leadership too in character development. If you're constantly, like the sophists were constantly talking about, you know, their polishness and all that, like how they judge their whole thing was about the shininess, this appearance. And here's the interesting thing about that. A lot of churches in North America and people are going through deconstruction 
And oftentimes it's when they realize that the pastors, the elders, the leaders were not as shiny as they were made out to be on a surface level. That deep character flaws of people that were pushed into ministry too soon or people that went into ministry for the wrong reasons are being exposed. There's a shaking going on in the church right now in part because we have sometimes taken the values of our cultures and put them onto what Christian leadership should be and then we should not be surprised then when it blows up, right? Like when we expect, when we're, when we're judging people by the standards of the world versus the standards that God cares about. And that's important. And Paul is talking about this, that they should take pride in that. And verse 12b is a side note. Um, he said, there's those that falsely boast on the outward, the superficial, the surface, the show, but avoid the substance of the heart. The substance matters. Would you say it with me? Substance matters. One, two, three. Substance matters. The sophists were all showing no substance. In fact, we know in the ancient world, they paid attention to the clothing, the appearance, the delivery, the sound of the voice, like all of these things, which is great for a theater show, but not for people leading the church. (laughs) Amen. Those are not the important things at all. The important things are character, trajectory, testimony, fruit. These are the things that matter. And Paul's saying, you've been led astray by these folks and he's trying to bring them back around. So he goes on and let's move to verse 13 quickly. Uh, this is, I love this passage. I mean, this is crazy. Like, he says, for, for we are out of our minds. If we are out of our minds, it's for God. And if we are in our sound mind, it is for you. This reminds me of a story. So <laughs> in the church that we were involved in a church merger with a church plant that we helped start way back in the day. And there was an older congregation. It was a Mennonite church merging with the Christian Missionary Alliance church. And we were duly affiliated after merger, but There was one old guy, and I totally forgot this story until reading this text this week and studying it. And this memory came back to me. And I started preaching in the church, and I I use my hands to talk. If you tie my hands, I can't talk, okay? Uh, I use my hands to talk. And I'm not like Italian. I'm not like, you know, and I'm not like stereotypical, you know, whatever. But, okay, I'm going to die for that. No, no, I should backtrack. For all of you, I love you. Okay. (laughs) Um, You know, I'm not like stereotypically expressive, but I am expressive, okay? So... Anyway, this guy comes up to me after church one time, and he was an old, old, old man, and uh, not, his age isn't the reason, but his character, I'm sure, is, and he said to me something to the effect of, you are using witchcraft on the congregation. That was a new one. I've been accused of a lot of things on and off over the years, but that was a new one. Which, oh, I am. Okay, tell me about this. I said, how am I using witchcraft? You know, and he, he's like, because you use hand gestures. You're trying to, I forget what the, like, like you're trying to fool the crowd. You're like, <laughs> and, and I really, like, I didn't know what to, like, I, I just, I listened to him, you know, and I was younger at that time. And so I'm like, you know, I was like, okay, okay. I, uh, so I asked around, I said, like, what is he talking about? And nobody knew what he was talking about, like of people that were his contemporaries that knew it. I was like, okay, whatever. Paul says this, if we are out of our mind, some think that he may be referring to the supernatural gifts that he talks about in 1 Corinthians, speaking in tongues, prophecy, healings, and all of that, which the ecstatic speech pieces, the language, the word here used uh, sort of that is that ecstatic, caught up in ecstasy that we use in English, but ecstatic gifts of the Holy Spirit that perhaps... He's saying, if I'm in speaking in tongues or I'm involved in these spiritual gifts, I'm not trying to bewitch you. It's for God. I'm, I'm having an encounter with the Lord. It's between the Holy Spirit and me. So, so chill out, everyone. 
Also in 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14, he told them that, well, I try not to do much of that in front of you. And he gives them correction for the public use of the gifts of prophecy, speaking in tongues, healings and miracles and all that, and testing as well. What's the right use? What's the wrong use? And so he's already had, there's already a history there in this church of the spiritual gifts thing. So it may be referring to just his zeal and passion for the church, too many hand gestures, you know. It could be the spiritual gifts like speaking in tongues, or it could be also simply mean that his way of preaching was not as smooth as the sophists because they were smooth brothers. They were smooth operators. They were all about the shiny show. And so maybe they're referring to that as well. And so he's saying, well, his arguments may not be as adorned and a little too simple, a little too simplistic. He's like, well, if I'm out of my mind, he tells them, it's not because I'm trying to bewitch the crowd. It's not because of spiritual gifts. It's not, if, it's, if that's what you're experiencing, it's because it, that's for the Lord. But he said, I'm trying to make sure I'm in my right mind. I'm communicating with you in simple ways so you understand as well. Verse 13, very interesting there. So he goes on and says this. Now, so what is going on with me? For the love of Christ controls or compels us. I love this. His first motivation that he lists is the fear of the Lord, the awareness of God, the experience of God that he wants them to know who this God is revealed fully in Jesus, scandalously, that he has been captivated. He has gone from being one religion into the fullness of this new thing, into this messianic following of Jesus as the fullness of all that he's had this radical life change. And that fear, that thing that his experience that's motivated him. But now he says there's a deeper motivation that's even better than this. There's something else that's compelling him. And it is the love of Jesus that compels us. He says this, there are many different motives here. Well, let's talk about this word compel for a second, then we'll come back to that. This verb is to exercise a constraining influence on. Now, by the way, this can be read a couple ways. What is the subject of the, co the constraining influence? Is it Christ's love for us? It could also mean our love for Christ, by the way, but most scholars land on Christ's love for us. Because of what he says in the next part of the verse and everywhere else, it seems that makes the most sense of it. But actually, it could work both ways. It could be a plenary genitive, meaning both of those can work. But the love is compelling. It's impelling. Christ's love compels us. The deepest motivation he has is not the fear of hell. It's interesting here because I became a Christian where we talked a lot about hell and that we wanted to get people saved and we wanted to be motivated by hell. Not exclusively, but hell was definitely part of the picture that, Oliver, you need to follow Jesus because you will burn in hell, buddy, if you don't follow him. That was the kind of thing that he was raised in. That's how it is. That's my son, by the way. I'm just picking on him because I love him. So, you know, but that we would use that. <laughs> The hell motivation and hell, you know, we can have a whole debate about what hell is and, and the ranges of it and all of that. But, but that became a real focus that, you know, I don't want people to become crispy tater tots and eternal whatever, whatever. Like that was a thing that was taught into us. And yet here we're reading Paul and he says something very different. And this is illustrative for those of you that get the whole hell motivation thing. And those of you that don't, just don't worry about it. It's a nice history lesson. We can talk about it later. But Paul says his deepest motivation for him is the love of Christ. Not the fear of hell. It's the love of Christ. The love of Christ compels us. And he doesn't even talk about judgment. When he talks about judgment, 
He doesn't even go, oh, we'll get into that in a second. When he talks about judgment, he's not driven by a fear of judgment. In fact, when he gets to judgment, he says, guess what? Jesus is handling it. The love of Christ compels us. The love of Christ compels us. A healthy Orthodox Christian church ought to be motivated because we have been overwhelmed by the goodness of God, by our created inherent goodness and blessedness. And Jesus has dealt with the ugliness and we are compelled because we've experienced a deeper sense of our humanity than all the other identities we shuffle and have been forced on us, there is something about getting your rootedness in the love of Christ that changes your life. And Paul says, that compels me. Somebody ought to say amen. (sighs) All right. The deepest motivation. He says, it confines me. It shuts me up. It compels me. Like the different flavors around what that verb means is that this is central. This is the most important. This is the driver of the whole thing. That's good stuff. Thanks, Paul. (laughs) And then he says this last half. Why? Because we're convinced that one, Jesus died for all, therefore all died. The significance of Jesus' death on the cross is for all people, all humanity. He has died for all. In fact, this would be a very anti-Calvinist scripture right here. He didn't die just for the elect. He didn't die just for God's favorite folks in a back, dark, smoke-filled room. He didn't die for some hidwill. He died for all. Whew. Therefore, all have died in him representatively. He has already, as the old hymn says, he already paid it all. And this compels us. This drives us. This moves us forward, he says. Why do we need to be on mission to be a church where people can exist to love our city and invite our neighbors to root themselves in? I can't read the whole thing. I don't have it fully memorized yet. But love, invite, flourish, root in Jesus. It's the love of him that compels us because there's a core identity that you are meant to have in your creator above all other identities. And it will set you free to live as a different kind of human. Ooh, let's keep moving here. Jesus did it all. Verse 15, the last part of this section, then we'll do the, the last half. And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and for them and he who is raised. So again, it moves this beyond to say what happens when we say yes to this love. When we say yes to it, we are changed how we live. It's not just about me and my kin. I love that in our baby dedication and parent dedication saying it's not just about Jimmy and Sarah. It's also about their family, but it's not just about their kith and kin. It's also about the spiritual family. It's about them not only being blessed in their towards themselves, but also towards the larger world around. And as we do that, we flourish. And ironically, our families are more blessed when we act as a blessing to those outside of our immediate kinship circles. That's part of the kingdom of God. That the love of Jesus, when he starts to pour that into your heart, is not a finite quality. Our God is super abundant. That love keeps going. It multiplies. It multiplies again and again. And as you learn to serve, you learn to give, you learn to do that. You experience the super abundance and the blessing of God's economy of love in your life and in the lives of others. It's not limited. It's super abundant. Okay, I get a little preachy today. I guess I am a preacher. There is a danger there. I like how in verse 15, somebody says, well, so what does this mean Christ died for? And during the Lenten season, we may explore, what is, it, what is this death of the cross? What is this all about? And the church has a, a sort of a range of views on this, and I tend to be someone who says yes to all of them. 
and, and a slight no to one of them or parts of one of them, one interpretation of them. But Christ dies as a representative of humanity. He dies as a representative of humanity. He dies not only as a substitution in place of humanity, the wages of sin. And he says, because he did this as a representative of you and me, and in place of, he does it on behalf of all humankind. In Christ on the cross, God is taking on all the sins of the world, all the personal sins, all the social sins. Social sins, we may use the word like justice issues. Um, he also, in terms of personal sins, in terms of things that are missing the mark in our own lives as well, and the relational sins, he dies for all of them, not simply for the elect, not simply for all believers, but simply for all. Now, of course, you have a choice whether or not you participate in that. That's when we talk about the plan of salvation. But the work of the cross changes fundamentally the creation. So here we are 2,000 years later almost talking about this and experiencing this. And some of you have experienced this allness of Christ by saying yes to Jesus. And you're still being captivated by that. Why is that? Because he's alive and he's working by his spirit. Because this is truth of the deepest sort. Okay, I need to get to the last half. And everyone said amen. Okay. Don't rush, Shell. It's okay. Parent-child dedication. I just shared my internal dialogue with all of you externally. How's that for, is he in his right mind? Like Paul said. <laughs> Let me set the stage here for this last little section. And I'm, I'm going to zoom in just on a few parts of the verses and not necessarily walk through everyone deeply. There's this concept of the gaze. The gaze within critical theory. And this is where you're going to get, this is where you get the, the $20 part of the sermon right here. Um, within critical theory, there's this concept of when a person or people who are in power look at others and how they look at them. It's this concept of the gaze. And it applies in various ways, whether it was talking about the colonial powers, whether it's talking about um, uh, past or present, by the way. There's new colonial things happening. You would think, like, uh, check on parade over the Olympics. You would think that uh, Chairman Xi would figure out not to repeat the mistakes of the white people in the West, but it seems like he's doubling down on that, particularly with ethnic minorities in mainland China. But that's a sermon for another day that's not going to be live streamed. So anyway, and uh, God bless the powers that come. Uh, <laughs> but this imperial gaze that, that treats others like children or trivializes them, and we saw that from the Western colonial powers. We see this colonial gaze, this awareness of it, and this gaze to talk about the male gaze, whether it's a male, female kind of, like this idea of how we look, how we gaze as a controlling thing of lowering others in which we get our identity off of judgment or thinking ourselves better, whatever, and however we slice that. And that gaze comes out in various ways. If you want to research that later, go for it. Like there's many, many different ways it comes out. We're still dealing with the problem of colonialism in North America. And new colonial powers are arising across the globe. But there's something interesting here. And I was like, this never struck me this way until this time reading through this. And I, I don't know why. I mean, it was the Holy Spirit. I think it might be. But there's something about this. The New Testament confronts head on here in this passage in verse 16 in the last half. The language used here, so then from now on, we acknowledge no one. The word used here is sort of a, a viewpoint, a, a knowing through experiencing of, and we might use the word of a visual word to talk about acknowledging people or seeing people. He said, so from now on, we acknowledge, or we could say, see, observe, gaze upon no one from an outward human point of view. Even though we have known Christ from such a human point of view, now we do not know him in that way any longer. What happens when you're changed by the love of God? Your sight for others changes. How you see other people changes. 
all of the identities that we are given. Now, it's not to downplay those. Some of those are really important, not to say it, but your primary way of seeing others shifts in Jesus as someone who is of invaluable, inestimable worth, whom Christ died for, and he also died for you. There is a leveling of the gate. There is something about our vision that changes in Christ. He said, when I said yes to the lordship and the kingship of Jesus, I no longer view people from the point of view, the gazes that I was given before, in his case, as a religious Jew within his cultural context. And I no longer see people and are analyzing by that way anymore. I'm no longer trying to slice and dice them in that way anymore. Now, I see them first and foremost as loved of Christ who also, and he says in Galatians 2.20, Jesus who loved me and died for me. Now I see everyone that way first and foremost. Now, yes, that doesn't mean we run away from issues of justice, but it means how we approach them is empowered by something beyond simply the empowerment that we may see in the world around us. I no longer see them, but I see them now from a different way. May this church in South Vancouver be a place of healing of our eyesight, of how we see one another, that we begin to see each other and our neighbors as beloved by God, of ones that he died for, of ones that he gave his life for, that he entered into the messiness of creation for. May this church be a house of healing and hope for the nations. May we be people who have eyes that are healed, that we see now as brothers and sisters, beloved in Christ. And then we can celebrate all those other things, But those things are not to be used for judgments. They're not to be used for analysis. They're to be used as celebrating and empowering, but first and foremost, through the love of God for us. Oh, this good stuff here. I could say so much more. I like how one scholar put, he said, he no longer knows anyone, including Jesus, Along the usual lines of sense perception, his insight now allows him to see beyond physical, political, historical circumstances that crucified the Jesus of history. Now he can discern the act of God in bringing new creation out of the old. And so he goes on, and we're going to push on this morning to the very end. He says, so then, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. What is old has passed away. Look, look, the new has come. A new universe is in the works. It's like immigrating to a new country. We don't use the same money. If we tried to use the money from the other country, well, I mean, it's modern days. You have to go through process. But you can't just walk up to any store and do that usually. You got to learn the, 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 the customs and all of that. He says, in Christ, something new has happened. A new country, a new creation is emerging. A new thing as followers of Jesus. And he goes on. Let's just get to the last part here. Verse 17 So then a new creation, he says, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Jesus and had given us the ministry of reconciliation. Paul said that this ministry of bringing us in relationship with God, that God is doing all of this. And it's interesting in 18 and 19, he says the symphony was composed on Calvary. Now he's just copying it into individual parts for everyone in the world to play. He says, God in Christ is doing this. God initiates God, in God's self through Jesus on the cross, takes on the sin and brokenness. And before we can respond, God the Father already has initiated the relationship. It's already taken care of. Jesus paid it all. And well, and we could join with Paul, all to him I owe. We have a choice. You've been empowered by God's gracious gift to say yes to Christ. God has done the work. He has removed the division. He has removed the things that we do to destroy ourselves and others. He has taken on the the curse of that. And we can walk in love if we say yes to this relationship. But he doesn't force you into it. He offers it graciously. In fact, that's the whole language of ambassador there, right? 
Ambassadors in the ancient world, you would be from the lesser power going to the greater power. You would send your ambassador, well, in this case, to Rome and try to make the best terms you can with whatever's going on geopolitically here. But it's interesting, in God's economy, it's different. Paul says, I am Christ's ambassador pleading with you. Paul, who's representing the almighty God, creator of the universe, the one who lived and died and rose from the dead, instead of you having an audience with him in his capital, in his special city, he says, I am coming to you. I am the greater, representing the greater power coming to you. And I plead with you on his behalf to say, be reconciled with him. This is the upside down kingdom of God. The ambassador of the greater is coming to you and I. And not only that, he's already dealt with all the issues ahead of time. He took them on and he's saying, I have removed all the barriers, but I will not force a relationship. I ask you, be reconciled with me. How crazy is that? How crazy is that? That's not how ambassadorship worked in the ancient world. If you were the big bad empire, they came to you on hand and knee. You didn't go to them. And here Paul's saying, I am coming to you as an ambassador of the most high God revealed in Jesus. Woo! That's how much he loves you. And by extension, the last few verses here. And all these things are from God, again, verse 18, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, who has given us the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's sins against them or trespasses. And he has given this message. And he says to the church at Corinth, therefore, we are Christ's ambassadors through God. We're making his appeal, his plea through us. And we plead with you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled. For he made the one, verse 21, who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him, you could become the righteousness of God, the display of the new humanity, the new creation breaking through. Look at your neighbor and say, you are a new creation. Come on, look at your neighbor this morning. You are a new creation. And we don't have time to unpack what does it mean that we're on a journey, that it's in breaking, but it's not fully. We get that. But just so you know, new creation in Christ. Most profound and compact statement of the work of the cross, verse 21 the Old Testament sacrifice system foreshadows this, this idea of the scapegoat, this idea of the sin bearer of Christ. Jesus is given the position of a sinner. And there's different atonement views on how exactly all that happened. And we don't have time to debate about that today. But the answer most simply is in the cross, something happened that changed the equation about injustice and evil and brokenness in the whole creation. And that is not to ever be an excuse to not keep doing the work Towards justice, by the way, some evangelicals get a little wobbly on this when, in fact, Paul talks about this. Well, does that mean we go on sinning or keep doing all the things that we did before? He's like, God forbid. In fact, that should empower you now to risk more for the goodness and flourishing of others. So let me wrap this up and land this. Amen. The things I think this text I really want you to take away from this morning is, number one, Paul's motivation, first and foremost, this overwhelmed uh, awe and uh, amazement of God or in the old school language, fear, which is not exactly the same way as we would understand fear. And ultimately, bigger motivation is love. The one that is most constrains and most compels him, he says, is the love of God revealed in Jesus. Like Galatians 2.20, uh, Jesus loved me and gave himself up for me. Would you say this this morning, if you're willing? Jesus loves me. Don't you say it with me? Jesus loves 
One more time. Jesus loves me and gave himself up for you. And you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and even Oliver. He's asking for 20 bucks every time I mention his name in a sermon. So just so you know, he, he gets, he's getting, payout has not occurred yet, but we'll see. The second thing I want you to walk away from this, Paul's primary motivation was not the fear of hell, not the fear of judgment, but the love of Christ. The second thing I want you to remember today is our gaze changes, that, that the ancient truth of Christianity is just as relevant today as when Paul wrote it then, that in Christ, how we see one another changes. And if your view of each other is not changing, I would challenge you to go back and rediscover the gracious wonder of the gospel of Jesus the story of Jesus' life, and the plan of salvation that flows from that. And this is the uniqueness and the scandalousness of the church. Why did the church get in trouble with imperial Rome? Because, well, they claimed the uniqueness of Jesus and wouldn't worship all the other gods, wouldn't just add them into the pantheon, as it were. But they were tearing down walls between people that those walls were supposed to be there because the empire benefited from those walls. They were doing things that were just out, just crazy. How, why did it drive some of the early Jewish folks that didn't convert? Because they tore down the walls between Jews and Gentiles. Why? Because Christ's love, God dealt with it. Jesus paid it all. So the gaze of empire, the gaze of racism, the gaze of men and women, the gaze uh, that destroys and devalues one another created in the image of God in Christ is confronted head on again and again and again. And that is part of the kingdom justice. So our gaze is changed, critiqued, called out, however it may be. And finally, I just want to leave you with this. We are called. Paul's talking about his ministry here, but by extension, when you've come a follower of Jesus, in some ways, not just the official pastors and all of that, yes, they have probably a different, more publicish role, but every one of us is an ambassador of the Most High God. You're like, well, how does that work? Well, if he's the same God who's instead of saying everyone needs to come groveling to me, says I'm going to come to you, just like the parable of the prodigal son, or, the, or better put, the parable of the running father, the one in that culture who should have let everyone come to them and grovel before them, he comes out of the house, meets his son on the road, comes to him and says, my son who is lost is found again. That you are, in some ways, when you say yes to Jesus, you become part of the ambassadorship program of the kingdom of God. You are ambassador this week. You are not just a teacher. You are not just a businesswoman. You are not just a, a, a student or a musician, whatever. You are an ambassador of the kingdom of God. You are one who God has given the message to that there is a rooted and groundedness in love. And you say, well, I don't know where to start with that person. That's why we need the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. We need to lean into God's nudges and leadings. Because it won't be everyone that you share the message of the kingdom with in whatever way that the Spirit gives you wisdom in that moment. But there are somebodies in your lives right now that they are in that place. They begin to recognize that this world as is is not my permanent dwelling house. Yeah, God loves it. It's breaking it, but something's a little off. And that offness is that call to find their rootedness and their love in Jesus. You can be, you, you have that ambassadorship. Well, stand with me this morning. I want to pray and then we're going to receive communion as we close out our service. The motivation is love. The look is changed, how we see. And we become agents of the kingdom of God. Be reconciled to God on his behalf.
I'm going to invite Tyler and Claire to come up. I think they're serving us today at communion.